0: Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the Word of God and worship, Lord, that we do get to declare our love and our loyalty to You. And Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Word of God, that it was written for our learning that we, through the comfort of these Scriptures, might have hope. And Lord, I pray that You would fill hearts here with hope. Lord, we thank You for the grace and the mercy that we have in Jesus. The love and reconciliation that we have in Jesus. We commit this time to You and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 11 The Nahash, the Ammonite, came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. Yeah, such a deal. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel, and then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news and the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now, there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news and his anger was greatly aroused. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people. And they came out with one consent. And when he numbered them in Bezek, The children of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who came, thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have hell. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh and they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said tomorrow we will come out to you and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal and they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. When we came to the end of chapter 10, you'll remember how it ended the very last sentence. But some rebels said, how can this man save us? And this chapter becomes an answer in part to that question. Chapter 11 is going to present an example of God using the new king to save the people. Now, you'll imagine, remember, in the book of 1 Samuel, it's the time of transition from the time of the judges to the time of the kings. And prior to the establishment of the monarchy, there was a loose confederation of tribes that existed in the north and that existed in the south. Judah and Benjamin were in the south. The The other tribes were located in the north. And you'll remember that during the time of the judges, it was noted that everyone did pretty much what was right in their own eyes. And now there was going to be a shift in government. There was going to be a shift in the way that things are done. There is a new king. And when you become a Christian. You abandon one king and you embrace another. In your old life. Your king was yourself. Your king was your desires. Your king was whatever you submitted to in order to satisfy yourself. But when you became a Christian, you nominated Jesus Christ to be the king of your life, to govern your life, to direct your life, to guide your life. And the moment that you make Jesus king, guess what? Your thoughts, your heart, your behavior should substantively change. As a matter of fact, Paul in writing in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12 said, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The moment that you decide to put down the joint, the moment that you decide to put down The beer, the moment that you decide to put down the tequila shooters, the moment that you decide to put away the party life, the moment that you decide that your life and your circumstances and the way you live your life and the way you occupy your life and the things that used to preoccupy you are going to be different, there are going to be people who mildly annoy you. There are going to be people who ridicule you. There's going to be people who persecute you. There might even be people who abuse you. You see, Satan abused you. Abuse takes many forms. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to start an argument? About something that just seems so innocent. Broadly, we can fall into two types of category. Abuser or abused. Verbal attacks lead to real threats, which can easily lead to physical attacks. And we are often quick to use the term abuse to mean anything from a disagreement to the hurting of a person's feelings. You don't know how many times people have called me, particularly wives, my husband's abusing me. Can you tell me exactly how he's abusing you? He's making fun of me. That probably doesn't constitute... Abuse, verbal attacks can lead to physical attacks, but let me help you understand something. The root word in the Latin language for abuse, abuti, it meant to consume. It carried with it the idea of a person who takes everything and gives nothing back. As a matter of fact, the dictionary definition includes a corrupt practice or a corrupt custom, improper or excessive use, like, you know, abusing a car or a toaster. It's, it's a mechanical thing that you use it to its limits so much so that you destroy it. Another dictionary definition. Um, Definition, language that condemns or vilifies usually unjustly or intemperately or angrily or physical maltreatment. But abuse is something that results in harm. And that harm is almost almost universally categorized as being a permanent kind of a harm. And that's exactly what's happening now. The Ammonites are located just east of the children of Israel. It says in verse 1, Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead, and the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we're going to serve you now. The the Ammonites were the descendants of Lot. Do you remember Lot? He was the nephew of Abraham and you'll remember that when Abraham and Lot went their separate ways Lot wound up in Sodom God judges Sodom Um, Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed Lot and his two daughters think that they're the last human beings on the earth. They go to a cave they get their old man drunk each one of the daughters has sex with their own father and produce offspring and these are the offspring. I don't know if you have relatives where there's not many forks in the family tree. These are the distant relatives of the Israelis who live just outside of town. Now, for those of you who went with me to Israel, you remember that we went to a place called bet Shean, And bet Shean is south of the Galilee. And as you go south of the Galilee, you go ten more miles and then two miles east of The the river Jordan, Sea of Galilee is in the north. The Dead Sea is in the south. The river Jordan connects them. If you go about three-quarters of the way down, you come to the place called Jabesh, Gilead. Or Bethshean, or Gilboa. This is the place. And the Ammonites come up and they encamp. They circle Jabesh. And the reason being, because remember, even though Saul is a new king... There are still threats and there are still circumstances. They surround the city with a massive army and they threaten the, ar- the, the people. As a matter of fact, just as an aside, later in, in the future, as we walk through the life of Saul, there's going to come a time when Saul is killed on Mount Gilboa. And you'll remember that as he is killed on Mount Gilboa, the enemies take him and they tack his body on the walls of Betjean. The men of Jabesh Gilead will never forget this kindness. And in the middle of the night, they will go the 16 kilometers or the 10 miles and they'll remove the body from off of the wall. They'll take it back to Jabesh Gilead and they'll cremate the remains there. But right from the start, The men of Jabesh Gilead, they attempt a truce, a surrender. In their minds, the terms of the surrender mean that they become the slaves and the subjects of the Ammonites. In other words, they're willing to voluntarily submit themselves to subjugation. They're voluntarily willing to be abused. And you see, a lot of Christians live that way also. They come to Christ. They believe that Jesus is their new king. But the first sign of threat, the first sign of intimidation, they just simply think that they have to give in to the threat and they have to give in to the intimidation. Abused people often cave into threats when they see no way out of their situation. Some of you here know what it means to be really abused. Some of you, tragically, in a different life, carried the name abuser. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, he said, you know, some of you used to be murderers, liars, cheats, thieves, sexually promiscuous. But guess what? All of those things are in the past. You've become a new person, a new creation. When people use intimidation and threat to control you or manipulate you in order to get what they want against your will, you're in an abusive relationship. And that's exactly where the people of Jabesh Gilead found themselves. They are trying to survive. They see no way out of a manipulative, intimidating, and abusive circumstance. And that's why it says in verse 2, And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and bring a reproach on all of Israel. The abuser isn't willing to just simply receive your surrender. Abuser's... Demands are exceedingly high and the cruel condition included gouging out the right eye of each and every citizen. And remember, the purpose of this condition is to disgrace the citizens of the city. It isn't just to to disgrace the citizens of the city, but it's to paint every Israeli as weak and cowardly. And there is the added reality that the king knows that if he's able to blind one of the eyes and create a handicap so serious, he can effectively prevent any future revolt. And that's exactly, that's exactly, that's exactly what an abusive situation does. It's not good enough to control you. It's not good enough to manipulate you. It's not good enough to dominate you. They have to humiliate you. Hurt you. And that's exactly what was taking place here. And because they see the people of Jabesh... Gilead is weak and cowardly and because they see all Israelis as weak and cowardly. You have to understand that mindset. Abusers often think of their victims as cowards. Do you understand what I'm saying? An abusive person sees you as a commodity to be consumed. As a trophy that is owned. For whatever reason, they give themselves permission to not only take advantage of you, but to humiliate you. An abuser may not literally gouge out your eye, but they're content to punch you, or to slap you, or to kick you, or to bite you, or to pull your hair. The abuser will abuse you and then blame you for their abuse. And the abusers feel justified in their abuse. They have no problem excusing their behavior. And so in verse 3, the elders of Jabesh said to the king, hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there's no one to save us, we'll come out to you. Now, this is interesting on so many different levels. The elders of Jabesh make two appeals to the king of Ammon. And and by the way, if you are in an abusive relationship, is it unusual for the abused person to appeal to the abuser? Hey, you know, I know that we're in this abusive relationship. I know that I've asked you repeatedly not to hit me. I've, I know that I've asked you not to show up at work un, unannounced. I know that I've asked you uh, to, to, to quit doing these particular kinds of, of behaviors. And I'm just wondering um, if you'll do that. <laughs> now, do, does an abuser always feel obligated to honor the terms of the abuse? Not Always. So one thing that is interesting to me is why does the king of Ammon give them seven days to consider the conditions and allow the messengers to go out to the territory of Israel to appeal for help from their near relatives? And the only answer that I can come up with is that the king, number one, may be unwilling to expand Or expend the resources at this particular moment. There could be a situation where, hey, look, even though I need to subjugate these people, you know, it's going to cost me a certain amount of money. I am going to lose a certain amount of men. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, if I can get a whole lot for nothing, is that an abuser's mentality? To get the most amount for the least amount? I'm thinking that that's probably part of what's happening here. Or it could be a sense of self-confidence or overconfidence. It could be that the king of Ammon is convinced that even if an army could be mobilized it would be so easily defeated that they would get more people to conquer, more spoils, more wealth. It would be like, go ahead and ask your family and friends to come over because guess what? I'm going to subjugate them too. Abusers often count on the disinterest of family and friends and relatives. If my daughter came to me and said, my husband is beating me it's like a really bad scene from The Godfather. You see, there's two kinds of abusive people. There, there are the kind that when you say, I'm going to tell my dad, that the abuser knows, okay, it's pretty much over. Because I'll call up my father and I'll say, okay, who has jurisdiction if the head is found in Jefferson County and the body is found in Arapahoe County? Not that I would do anything illegal. But do you you understand what's happening? A lot of times, abusers count on the deep disinterest of people. Abusers make sure that no one cares. Or, if people really do care, the abuser will try to isolate you. From that caring community. They'll try to cut you off from mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, family and friends, church and support. Whatever the king's reason for granting the request. It's going to prove to be a fatal mistake. Because the siege of Ammon on the city of Jabesh Gilead becomes a type and and a picture of abuse and persecution that takes place in every generation. And so look what it says in verse four. So the messengers came to Gibeah Saul and they told the news in the hearing of the people and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. The people of Jabesh Gilead, they send out the message as soon as possible, and they basically say, look, the Ammonites are here, they're threatening us, and even if we voluntarily surrender ourselves, they're going to mutilate the citizens and it says in verse five, now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? And, and they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. Apparently, since the crowning of Saul as king, uh, the, the monarchy hasn't been established like you and I might think. Here's Saul and he's out in the field. He's still farming the, 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 the ground. He isn't building himself a palace. He's farming the ground and he's herding the donkeys. And he says, and Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? When the news breaks, we find him working at his old job. And I think that that's interesting. And in verse six, it says, then the spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news and his Anger was greatly aroused. As a matter of fact, the writer of 1 Samuel records in the the Hebrew language, it says the Spirit of God came upon Saul. The text gives us the impression that the Spirit... Here's the idea. It's a word that you would use to describe a lion that leaps on its prey. It, it, It isn't just that the Holy Spirit comes upon him. The Holy Spirit comes upon him In almost a violent way, um, a a dramatic way, uh, an impressive way, if you will. In other words, the Holy Spirit gives him the ability to respond in a bold and a dramatic way. Now, this becomes an important issue because the capacity to share God's anger at great injustice is a gift that more people need to have. There needs to come a time when you see abusive situations and you need to be not just profoundly grieved, but you need to be overwhelmed. I think that there is a sense of godly anger that takes place. And that's exactly what's happening. A spirit of righteous anger wells up inside of Saul. But it's more than that. It's more than just a righteous anger. I'm going to suggest something else to you. Not only does a spirit of righteous anger well up inside of Saul, but the Holy Spirit also comes upon him to direct that anger at the threat. And in verse 7, look what it says. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces. Now, this is reminiscent of an earlier thing that had taken place in the book of Judges. You'll remember that a man's concubine was sexually assaulted in a priest in the northern part of the country. And the priest took his concubine and he hacked her into 12 different pieces and he sent her to the different tribes of Israel. And some of you have asked me the question, that's kind of that's kind of rated R. Hacking a human body to pieces and sending them to the different tribes? Why would anyone in their right mind do such a thing? My belief is that remember during the time of the judges when everyone did what was right in in their own eyes? That someone had to do something so shocking, so disturbing, that people would cause themselves to ask this question. What will so shock you and disturb you that you're willing for the apathy and the indifference to go away. now, Saul doesn't hack the ox into pieces. I'm going to suggest to you something else is taking place. As a matter of fact, as we reread So he took a yoke of oxen, he cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out to battle with Saul and Samuel, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out with one consent. Saul is issuing a call across the nation for the troops to report for duty, and he uses this graphic illustration to make the point. But I'm going to suggest something to you. That they're not hacked up in a fit of anger. But they're cut like pieces to be offered and sacrificed to the true and the living God. He doesn't hack them up in, in a violent act of anger. But he is cutting them up specifically the way a priest would cut up an offering and sending the offering to the various tribes because he's trying to make a point. And here's the point. What happens to one Israeli happens to all Israelis. And when you have a charismatic leader and you have a common cause, there's something that wells up inside of the heart of individuals. When there is something that happens, like what happened to us, what seems like so long ago, when terrorists... Flew planes into the Pentagon, into the skyscrapers in New York. There was a sense of outrage because 3,000 Americans lost their life in a split second, and all Americans from California to New York. From Minnesota to New Orleans, from Florida to Oregon, they unite with one voice and they come to the principled conclusion that what happens to one American happens to all Americans. And if, by the way, when they were killed in the Pentagon and when they were killed in New York, do you think that the terrorists were wondering, I wonder if this person is a liberal or a conservative? I wonder if this person's black or white or a Christian or an unbeliever or a Muslim even in those circumstances, they had no desire other than to kill as many Americans as quickly and as effectively as possible. When you pull a gun on an officer, but you're not pulling a gun on an officer, you're pulling a gun on everyone in the department. When I work for the Bureau, if you pull a weapon and you point it at a federal agent with the idea of shooting that agent, every single agent in the Bureau takes it personally. When you threaten one agent, you threaten all agents. When you threaten one officer, you threaten all officers. When you threaten one American, you threaten all Americans. And this becomes the seminal point because now the Lord is going to use This opportunity of persecution and abuse to create a mechanism where the people will unite together and face the threat. This is the absolute meaning of just war. The text says, go out with Saul and Samuel to battle. Saul is the king. Samuel is the prophet. If ever there was such a thing as a holy war, if ever there was a thing, such a thing as a just war, this is it. Obedience to the king, consistent with the prophet. And they understand something. If the Ammonites are allowed to subjugate these people and gouge out their eye and abuse them and humiliate them, then permission is being extended to abuse and humiliate everybody else. And guess what? It's not going to happen. It says, and the fear of the Lord fell on the people. And they came out with one consent. The reason why this becomes so important to each and every one of us, what is it that will cause you to become so disturbed by the presence of abusive circumstances that you will say, this is unacceptable? And I'm here to tell you, in this church, because we've had circumstances of abuse that have taken place in this church, the moment that a woman comes to this church and she walks into my office and she can demonstrate to me that, that a husband has punched her or kicked her or pulled her hair or broken her teeth, he, I am going to be the first person who calls the police and say, you know what? I'm going to visit your husband in jail and I'm going to pray for your husband and I'm going to talk about all the wonderful opportunities that he's going to have to share Christ as he repents and understands that he's going to have to accept the consequences for what he has done. We will love him. We will urge him to repent. We will visit him in jail. But we're not going to let him get away with it. So, Husbands, you stand warned. And make no mistake about it. I will do exactly what I've said. Get the tape and keep it. And the fear of the Lord fell on the husbands. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what, that's not what the text says. And then in verse 8 it says, And when he numbered them in Bessech, The children of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah were 30,000. Now, Besek is located some 15 miles west of Jabesh Gilead. So 300,000 and 30,000 people gathered together to face the threat. And in verse 9 it says, And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, that's midday, you will have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Do you understand something? That when you are in an awful situation, when you are in a life-threatening situation, when you are in an abusive situation, it seems almost surreal that someone says, I'll help you. I will help you. I will help you get out of that abusive situation. And and the message of hope came through loud and clear. You will have help. And look at verse 10. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. Now, in verse 10, the passage says, We will come out to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. What are the men of Jabesh Gilead doing to the Ammonites? Are they coming out to surrender, or are they coming out to fight? Do you understand what's happening? We'll continue. We're going to talk about the battle plan in just a moment. Look at verse 11. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch. Now the morning watch is like 3 o'clock in the morning till 6 o'clock in the morning. In other words, 15 miles away, 330,000 troops had gathered. And look what it says. And they killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. Again, depending on which time you take. If the killing starts at 3 o'clock in the morning and goes till noon, 4 o'clock in the morning till noon, 5 o'clock in the morning till noon, 6 o'clock in the morning till noon, guess what? The idea of they killed Ammonites till the heat of the day, it was like they killed them until they were exhausted killing them. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. I can imagine, as the Jewish people recounted this story and over and over again, that the overwhelming response, the response was so overwhelming that no two of them could be found side by side. So here's the idea. Saul comes up with a brilliant strategy that employs deception and a surprise attack on the enemy. Saul allows the leaders of Jabesh Gilead to fake surrender, to give King Nahash a false sense of security. He separates his men into three divisions for the surprise attack, and then he launches the attack and the soldiers fight until the enemy is utterly destroyed. Saul is gripped with a righteous anger that is aroused by the Spirit of God, and his anger burns against the cruel, savage threats of the Ammonites. And you know what? The Bible tells us be angry, but don't sin. And some of you have wondered, well, how can I do that? How can I be angry and not sin? The Bible says that anger is supposed to sufficiently motivate us so that we will do what is necessary to eliminate the threat, to end the persecution, and to make sure that the abuse goes away. I spent seven years in social services. I am so not good with abuse. In my life, I have seen children subjected to the most heinous forms of torture that you can imagine. One time, a child came into our services that we received, and this child had been beaten 120 times with a clothes hanger. I can't even begin to tell you how bad this is. But you know what? When the mother came for a supervised visit with that child, you know what the child did? The child went into her mother's lap and put her arms around her neck and kissed her mother and begged her mother to stop crying. You see, abusers and abused sometimes have a relationship that is very strong and very powerful, but they have no way of thinking about forgiveness and hope and reconciliation. I'm not good with assault. I am not good with murder. I am not good with adultery and extortion and stealing and shoplifting and lying and deception and ridicule and mockery and gossip and false accusations and drunkenness. And I am so not good with drunk driving. If you abuse alcohol and you drive with your children in your car. And I find out about it. I will call the police. I will have you arrested. And I will come and visit you in jail. And I will pray with you. And I will love you. And I will tell you about the hope that is in Christ. But you can't put your children at risk. You can't drive with them drunk and get away with it. We'll find out about it. You see we can all make a list of evil things that we're against. In Exodus 32:19 it says so it was as soon as he came near the camp you'll remember Moses coming down from the mountain he sees the calf he sees the people dancing and it says so Moses's anger was hot And he cast the tablets out of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. In Nehemiah chapter five, verse six, it says, and I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. When the people of Israel began to intermarry with the unbeliever, the the Bible says that that Nehemiah took them and he pulled their hair and he pulled their beards and he slaughtered. him upside the head. Wow, that sounds like spiritual abuse. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, remember what it says. Be angry and don't sin. Somehow we have to focus the anger in such a way. To be able to fulfill the plan of God. The Holy Spirit came upon Saul. He was given power to overcome the enemies of God. And here is, becomes the idea. We as believers, as we're filled with the Holy Spirit, guess what we are invited to do? We are invited to be angry against sin. We are also invited to allow the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life to confront those things that aren't right and deal with them. We have enemies that seek to enslave us. And just like in this example, they'll put out one eye. So that you at least, you know, can you imagine being the abused person? going, Well, at least I have one eye left and I'm not dead. Hey, there has to come a point where you go, guess what? I'm not good with this. I'm not good with the threats, and I'm not good with the fear, and I'm not good with with the uh, intimidation. We have enemies that want to enslave us and blind us and cripple us. Sexual perversion, pornography, greed, selfishness, perverse thoughts, hatred, disease, depression, lack of purpose, lack of hope, financial bondage, debt, bigotry, prejudice, discrimination, slander, gossip. Take your pick. Take one. Take all. But understand that there are ways that we can deal with each and every one of these things. Are you a veteran of abuse? Are you a person who because of alcohol or drug use or other reasons have fallen into the trap of viewing people like your own personal property? That they exist for you to consume them? Have you given yourself permission to hurt them, to steal from them, to lie to them? But there's hope. There's hope in Jesus. There's hope that by God's Holy Spirit, you can become a victor, you can defeat your enemies. You can live a life of victory and, and triumph. You'll remember in John sixteen thirty three, Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. The world is going to try and crush you. And squeeze you. And manipulate you. Your own desires will sometimes crush you and squeeze you and manipulate you. By the way, how does Jesus overcome the world? By his death and by his resurrection. Jesus will make promises and Jesus will keep promises and Jesus will come back to life. And as Jesus comes back to life, he's going to make good on each and every one of his promises. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to be inside of you and you're going to be given everything that you need in order to confront each and every issue. You know, in one sense, leadership comes in the heat of battle. It comes in the heat of conflict. It comes in the heat of opposition. And remember, a scattered nation now unites together and they can for the very first time begin to think of Saul. Not as somebody else's king, but as their king. It's been my experience, whether you're a pastor, whether you're a police officer, Whether you're a mother or a father, whether you're a businessman or a soldier, no matter where and what shape your leadership takes, trust in leadership is earned. And if you want to know if someone is qualified and capable of leading, you need to ask and answer the question, are they willing to make the hard choice when it comes to an abusive situation? And in verse 12, look what it says. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. There was this strong conviction that came over the army. The conviction that Saul was the right choice to be the king. And so some of the military leaders warned the citizens to declare their loyalty for Saul and the new form of government. And again, I'm going to suggest to you that these are probably the military officers and they're making a threat against the citizens who originally opposed Saul as king. Remember at the end of verse 10 and in chapter 10, verse 27. But look how Saul responds in verse 13. But Saul said, No, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. You should underline it because this is going to be one of the very few times in all of the reign of Saul that he actually does something right. After a decisive victory over the Ammonites, he refuses to act in fear or insecurity or hostility or animosity against his leadership. He exercises true humility. He exercises true restraint. And imagine, imagine, imagine if he would have exercised humility and restraint. In the episodes that are coming up, Saul makes a strong statement that it's the Lord who's made the deliverance in verse 13. And Saul rightly points out that no one will be put to death that day. But he didn't accomplish the rescue. And it wasn't even the men of Israel who united together who accomplished the rescue, it was the Lord. It was the Lord who did it. It was the Lord who allowed the people to act in unity with one mind and one heart to defeat one enemy. And for a brief moment, for a sparkling moment, Saul acts like a godly man and a godly king. There's something downright Motivating when people decide to do what's right. And it's interesting, in verse 14, then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. Samuel's present. And he uses the opportunity to unite the nation, not simply to rally around the new king. It isn't just a moment to rally around the new government. It isn't to just rally around the king or rally around the government. It's to point the people to the true and the living God. And so Samuel suggests that Saul be reaffirmed as, as king at Gilgal. In verse 15 it says, So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. The idea being they came together, they worshipped before the Lord. Look what it says, they made Great sacrifices, peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel greatly rejoiced. You'll remember in the book of Leviticus, there were different kinds of offerings. There was a burnt offering and a grain offering and a sin offering and a trespass offering. But the peace offering is found in Leviticus chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. And basically, the peace offering was called the Shalem. Now, you know about the word shalom. It was a sweet aroma. It was an offering that was made voluntarily. And it consisted of an unblemished male or female um, from the cattle, sheep or goat family. A bull or a lamb uh, could have a limb too short. And so you could only have an unblemished male or female from the cattle, the sheep or the goats. And the way that they would do it is they would take the fat on the entrails, on the breast and on the right thigh. They burned it with kidneys on the altar of the burnt offering. The priests were given the thigh and and the offer and the family were given the remaining portions and only the peace offerings were eaten. And, And the idea was that the peace offering was to point to a right relationship and friendship with God were represented by the peace offering and the fellowship meal. And so the idea was that this was an offering that was given voluntarily. It was given in order to declare thanksgiving. It was to declare the reality that God's help and God's love and God's blessing was there. And, and so in New Testament typology, the, the Bible talks about that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, he's called our eternal peace offering. God is satisfied. When Jesus is offered, the circumstances of sin are forever satisfied inside of us. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter five, verse one, I'm just going to turn there real quick because we're going to have communion in just a few moments. But in Romans chapter five, verse one, it says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. In other words, the peace offering has been made on our behalf. So that we can express joy and thanksgiving in all that Jesus has done. And so, in one sense, they come to Gilgal. Not simply to affirm Saul as king. But to remind everyone that the Lord is king. And you know what else is interesting? The people worship the Lord and Saul is able to forgive some of the troublemakers who earlier despised him. And I think that that's interesting. In Matthew chapter 5 verse 44 it says, "But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you." In Matthew 6:14 it says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The people of Israel were called upon to honor and obey the leader. And that honoring and that obedience is going to be sorely tested in the next few chapters. Because this shining, glorious moment is going to give way to pride and selfishness and self-seeking. And the person who championed the abused will become an abuser himself interesting the people of Jabesh Gilead though never forgot the kindness they never forgot the fact that when things were at their worst when circumstances were terrible beyond imagination a group of people united together and championed their cause you know you might find yourself in a circumstance Or someone is going to come to you and it's very, very, very clear that they have some very, very real problems and they need help. And you're going to face a challenge and that's to ignore and pretend that the abuse isn't taking place or to care that it is taking place. And be willing to suffer the consequences of calling wickedness and evil what it is. The Bible says that in this world you're going to suffer tribulation, but be of good cheer. Jesus has overcome the world. Is there hostility? Is there persecution? Is there abuse? Yes, there is. But if you are experiencing hostility and persecution and abuse because you've decided to live godly in Christ Jesus, that abuse and that persecution translates to rewards in heaven. Now, am I saying, well, you know, do something. Encourage a little abuse and persecution. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. You don't have to invite it. It will come. But in the meantime remember that the peace offering has already been made. The Lord Jesus Christ has become our peace with God. If there's a problem. If there's a struggle, if there's a distance, it doesn't have to remain You can experience peace with God through Jesus Christ. It really is simple. It's a willingness to turn from your sin and turn to the Lord and receive the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that's available in the person of Jesus Christ. You want peace with God? It's as simple as asking. And He'll give it to you. We're going to have communion in just a moment. I'm going to have the guys come up. I'm going to have the worship team come forward. What I'm going to ask you to do is just simply hold the elements until we all have an opportunity to partake together, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that if we're willing to unite, Lord, there's many, many things that we're going to be able to accomplish. Lord, we live in a world relatively free of persecution. But Lord, clearly, we live in a world where people still face abuse. From relatives, from near relatives, from neighbors, and from people who just, for whatever reason, they, they, they see you as an object that can be consumed. But, Lord, we know that we are your people, loved by you, cared for by you. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray for every man and every woman, and I pray for every child who is experiencing the pain and the horror of chronic abuse. Lord, I pray that the truth would become manifested. I pray that help could be on the way. And I pray that deliverance is very, very soon. And Heavenly Father, I also pray for the person who's agitated and upset. They're in a constant state of battle and turmoil because they're not walking in peace. They're not walking in love. They're not walking in forgiveness. Lord, I pray that they would experience the peace of God, that they would turn from sin and that they would turn to you and they would accept the offer of peace. That the sacrifice has already been made. And the remedy has already been provided. And Lord, I pray that they would pray that simple prayer in their heart. Heavenly Father, I am a sinner and I need a Savior. I understand that Jesus is my peace. That we've been justified by faith because we believe that the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus gives us access to grace. And Lord, I pray that they would avail themselves of that. Lord, I pray each and every man here and woman here would examine their heart and that they would see if there's anything that needs to be dealt with. Lord, I pray that they would ask forgiveness for sin. And Lord, I pray that they could take communion with a clear conscience and with great joy. In Jesus' name, amen.